calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. I proved so nice that we're taking it twice. It's episode 379 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Hopefully you've already watched Jungle Cruise on Disney Plus or in theaters. If you haven't yet, that's okay, but you really should. And if you need more convincing, I just happen to bring Veronica Falcone on the show this week to talk about Trader Sam on the movie. And boy, does she have an important part in this film. And, and if you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So we'll dive in with her about that. And of course, I'll expand on some of the stuff that I learned at the press conference and kind of ask her about that as well. A ton our reviews this week, you know the Suicide Squad is in theaters on an HBO Max. I'll give you my spoiler-free review of that. We'll go to Disney Plus to talk about Short Circuit Season 2. Another great interview as well. Taylor K. Mejia going to join me to talk about Paulo Santiago, Paulo Santiago and the brand new book, Book 2, in that series. Blue Beetle has been cast for an HBO Max movie. A ton of trailers and a whole lot more, but you know we're going to start things out in the jungle. Veronica Falcone joins me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Lexa Doig from Arrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I know that you've already seen it. You love it. Jungle Cruise in theaters now and on Disney Plus with Premier Access. And I'm sure that you saw Trader Sam as part of the fun in that. So I had to have her on to chat about it. Veronica Falcone, how you doing, Veronica? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? Doing very well. Now, right off the bat, Veronica, there were obviously some changes to your character from the one that appeared on the Jungle Cruise ride. So how did it kind of feel to update the Trader Sam character? Or, I mean, did this just feel like a brand new character for you altogether? No, I think it's an update. I mean, a lot of things are there. The spirit of the character is absolutely there. I mean, it's very well written. And I'm, I'm very happy that Disney decided that this time a woman was going to play Trader and I think it's a very modern take on, on the character, you know, and, and she's fantastic, but the spirit of the character is there and everything comes to, to a good script, you know, a good script. They are amazing at creating these characters. All these characters have very solid backstories. And I think we kept a, a lot of it and mostly the, the spirit of the character is there, you know, which is the most important part, the soul of it. I would totally agree with that. And from the writing part to the aesthetic part, how did you feel about the costume designer actually once you first saw how the character was going to be portrayed on the screen by you? 
I absolutely loved it. You know, uh, Paco Delgado, which is our costume designer, and Joel Harlow, who created the makeup. They, it was a, one of the first people uh, I meet, both of them, they were one of the first I meet when I arrived to Atlanta to do the movie. And I remember seeing like Paco had like all these drawings and prints and all the stuff of the character and they already had the costume. It blew me away. You know, I thought it was beyond beautiful. And we tried all these different ideas they had. They were all great for the character. They felt very natural to the character, very appropriate to the character. And he was very kind because at the same time, he was like, do you like it? Do you want to move anything? Are you comfortable? Which is a very smart thing. That's why they are you know, so great at what they do, Paco and Joel, because they really listen to the actor and they really listen to the character and they really listen to the director. Because, you know, characters like this is, is not the actor. It's so many people that work around it and, and create them. And especially if it's an iconic character like Trader, you know, there is a story. There are, there are images that everybody has to respect. And Disney is very precise with all of that, uh, rightfully so. And I think they did an incredible job. And with the makeup was kind of like the same. I saw the makeup, which was very, per- I mean, I've done my re- research of, of the tribes and, you know, and I had some images that I, I was inspired by just to know, you know, not to, because I don't have, that is absolute the creation of the creators of the costumes and the makeup. But in terms of research, you know, I, I like reading about anything I'm, that has to do with what I'm doing. And when I saw what he was doing, I'm like, oh my God, he's right on point, he's perfect. You know, and one of the things Joel added in terms of makeup that was very beautiful is like he asked me like are you comfortable I like this I like that I say I love it I absolutely love it and I say I this character is very uh, gestural he mo- she moves a lot the hands and he's like oh then let me do something for the hands and right away he created this hand makeup which you can see in one of the posters you know it has like a little eye here yep. and that was something he created because he knew it would work with what I was telling him. So you are working with people that are on top of the game and it's just fabulous to work with people like that. That's fantastic. Actually, when I was at the virtual press conference for the movie, I believe it was Dwayne that said that you could almost make another movie with all the jokes that actually didn't make the final (laughs) cut. So would you say that's true? And do you kind of have any fun moments that you could share with us that we didn't see? Oh yeah, I mean, there were so many, you know, like, it is true, like when you see Emily and Dwayne getting along like that with Jack, it is an absolute real relationship. Like, you know, of course they were acting all that, but when you see them backstage, when we were seeing while we were waiting, you know, for the lighting or whatever, they had that relationship and it was just so much fun. I couldn't even pinpoint one joke because it was one after another, you know, and the three of them together, it was like nonstop. Like if I wanted to put a joke in, good luck to me because they were just so good. Like when we were doing one of the first times we met, we were reading something and there's like, okay, maybe there's some, maybe you should say something. I mean, my character. And I was like, oh, I better say something good because these guys are great, you know? So, there were some, I, I just remember it. I mean, we, we shot that movie three years ago before the pandemic. So of course it feels like a hundred years ago. And I just remember laughing all the time, you know, like literally laughing all the time. And I would be sometimes like sitting, you know, and they would be talking and maybe I'm reading or doing something else. And then I overhear something and I would start like, oh my God, I can't, they just made me laugh. And, and that's, that's how it was. That's how the set was, you know? Lovely. It definitely came across in the movie, too. You could totally tell that you guys were having a blast out there. I really love the dynamic, too, though. You talked about Emily and, and, and Dwayne. I love the dynamic between Trader Sam and Frank on the screen as well. What was your favorite thing about that relationship? I love that Trader really is very honest with Frank and, and puts limits. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. You're not going to come here. You're not going to go there. And I love that she really loves Frank. You know, she's a good friend. And, and, and she really, you know, she can see before he does what's going on there, you know, and she enjoys it. I love that, you know, I love that they have a very, a very deep friendship, 
you know, and she's also very free and she is the way she is. And, you know, she's a little cuckoo and creative and all that, but she knows this man has a heart in the right place and she respects that and she loves that. And I think that's one of my favorite parts of their relationship. Really helped bring that out in him too, I think too. So I think Trader is really, really important in that regard. But speaking of which, one of the most pleasant surprises for me as I was watching it was how important Trader actually ends up being to this story. Now we're gonna try not to spoil anything, but how happy were you when you read that latter part of the script? You know, I was happy about everything, to be honest with you, just the fact that I got to play the role. Any, even if it had been one scene, I would have been equally happy. You know, but of course, when you realize that this character has an important part of what's gonna happen and knows all that, it was beautiful. And I just wanted to make that part. I remember when she's explaining the whole thing about, you know, the, the arrowhead and all of that. I worked really hard on, on the delivery because I wanted it to be very precise. I wanted, I wanted the audience to understand how much respect she had for this because it's absolutely real. You know, like if it wasn't real for the character, then the audience wouldn't buy it. You know, you really have to, to believe. And that's the thing, you know, like there are things that are magical and things that are not. And one of the most magical things I think is, is love. And this movie, if anything, it's about the power of love. You know, like, like the, the, the character of, of uh, Edgar Ramirez, you know, he goes into this journey out of love for a child, you know, for his daughter. And Dwayne and, and, and Emily, you know, out of love for humankind, you know, she wants to do, do, do good. So I wanted Trader to, to honor that in a way, you know, because she's very wise. She's very spiritual. And that's one thing I really love about that part. You definitely taught me a lesson. I can tell you that right now. I certainly bought it. I was like, oh, she's teaching school right now. I love it. I love it. I'm learn I feel like I'm learning something here. <laughs> oh, good, good. Glad to hear that. I also really love, though, how Jungle Cruise had like a couple of different villains. All the, I mean, you could maybe debate whether or not Aguirre is a villain or not, but I love that there was that kind of duality there. So who do you think was the biggest threat of the film? The biggest threat is not really a villain, right? Is because, um, you know, you have moments of villainous in uh, Jesse Plemons' character and in Edgar's, but I think when they are cursed, they are cursed because they disrespect the jungle and its inhabitants, you know, and that's, you know, when you, you disrespect that, when you disrespect nature, when you are not, then that becomes an enemy. But I think I really love Jesse Plemons, you know, I think he was fantastic. He was like a, a wonderful villain. And, and Nedgar, I agree, I think, you, it's hard to see him as a, as a very bad villain because his heart was in the right place uh, at the beginning, you know? So it, it's, it's one of those which is it's a difficult decision to see which one is more mean. Absolutely, because I, I see fans going back and forth about it on social media too. So yeah. that's, that's definitely something debate. I think. It's a very good debate. No doubt about that. So I know that this was, it was such an amazing cast. You got to work with so many great people but was there anyone that you really wished that you got who could have gotten to have more scenes with in the movie oh yeah Matty. wow that I was that was quick that. and easy right there because <laughs> oh, yeah. i had scenes with the rest of them yeah you did you know, I had a moment with edgar i had a moment with with jesse you know in the submarine of course with jack and with emily and with uh, and, and with Dwayne. But I never, because he was, I, I believe most of the part of uh, Paul Giamatti was shot in, in Hawaii. I didn't go there. And I would have loved to, to have something with Paul Giamatti because he's also like a businessman and, you know, and he wants to. So I would have loved to see Trader, you know, having a one-on-one, -on -one, like, like really fighting for something in terms of sales or like having a conversation about business with Paul Giamatti. Like, I really love that character and the, and the little parrot he has. Um, so yeah, and he's a phenomenal actor, you know, phenomenal, mm -hmm. phenomenal actor. So yes, I would love to have a little scene with him. Veronica, before I let you go, at some point, and I actually was thinking about this as I was getting ready to chat with you, would you kind of like to see a Trader Sam, like a prequel series or something of some kind, to really kind of expand on the backstory of this character a little bit more and where she came from? 
absolutely. Can you imagine? I mean, that would be an honor. Like it's already been fantastic to play Trader in the movie. If they ever decide they want me to play Trader again, anywhere, anywhere, and anytime, anywhere, I would be happy to. It just has been such a beautiful character for me to play. You know, like uh, I really fell in love with the character from the moment I read it. And just getting to do it in a movie like this with the, 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 the cast and the director we had and with these maybe handles was already more than I could ever imagine. So if anything else happens, it's, it's a wonderful gift. So yes, I would love to play Trader as many times as Disney wants me to. We'll keep our fingers crossed for that. But for now, you can definitely see Trader in Jungle Cruise, which is available right now in theaters and, of course, with Disney+. Plus. Premier Access, and you'll get to see what a wonderful job that she does as well. It's Veronica Falcon. Thank you so much for chatting with me about Jungle Cruise. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, James. Have a beautiful day. Seriously, just think about that for a second. A Trader Sam series on Disney Plus, like a limited series or something like that, I think that would be awesome. That's just me. If you haven't watched Jungle Cruise yet, get on that on Disney Plus with Premier Access or in theaters as well. Again, thanks to Veronica Falcone for joining me to talk about Jungle Cruise. Up next, my spoiler-free review of The Suicide Squad on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. This is comic book creator Brian Bucciolato, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to squat up and get nuts. My spoiler-free review of The Suicide Squad from Warner Brothers Pictures, James Gunn at the helm as a director and remember he said from the very beginning don't get too attached well this is a spoiler free review so i will not tell you who not to get too attached to but let's just say who you see is not necessarily who you're gonna end with i i, I could tell you that right now yeah there some bodies hit the floor in this movie for sure and again i won't tell you who and i won't tell you when but it certainly does happen and in a variety of ways. But what I can tell you is what you're left with is just this 100% crazy, unpredictable thrill ride. And that's exactly how I would describe the Suicide Squad. And, and you, you cannot even compare this to the previous Suicide Squad movie. I don't care. You want to talk about air cuts and studio cuts and all these different things? Okay, fine. This movie, I, I, I can almost guarantee you, no matter what cut they could have come up with for the previous movie, which I enjoyed, by the way, if you go back and listen to my review, it wouldn't compare to this. Because this one is just bonkers and off the wall, and the character interactions in this are fantastic. Idris Elba and John Cena together as Bloodsport and Peacemaker are just phenomenal the the dynamic between the two of them the one-upsmanship just the way that the two actors play off of each other is fantastic the the thing I did not expect was how much I was going to love Ratcatcher 2 because I gotta tell you that is a character that was almost the heart and soul of the Suicide Squad team believe it or not and that's not if you would have just gone into this and just looked at the roster of characters. I'm going to probably be willing to bet. That you wouldn't think that Ratcatcher 2. Would be the heart and soul. Of this team. But she, but she really. Really was. And it's funny because. Sure they're a ragtag group that obviously. Doesn't want to be doing this. They don't want to be together. They're doing this for obvious reasons. To just get their sentences reduced. And then all of a sudden they start to come together as a team. Right, And they find some common ground in certain areas. And there really is a heartfelt aspect to this in all of the craziness, right? And you get to understand the the people underneath these villains, antiheroes, whatever you want to call them. And how 
at the end of the day, they just kind of need each other in a very screwed up way. So it was very, very cool to see this movie have a little bit of heart as well. By the way, Daniela Melchior plays Ratcatcher 2 and a future star as far as I'm concerned. And so many of these other... Dave Desmalchian. First of all, I had no idea that Dave had those kind of moves. So, David, if you're listening, bravo. You have some very interesting dance moves. And I had no idea that you had it in you. Just what they did with King Shark, I thought was so much better this time around as well. And I love what they did in just highlighting how much of a just a terrible human being Amanda Waller is. That's the Amanda Waller you want. That's the Amanda Waller that DC fans, true DC fans, want to see. Is the Amanda Waller that is just morally, completely just non-existent. That is the Amanda Waller that you're going to get in this movie. And I love them for that. You know that Starro's in it. You know that from the trailer. How that plays out is very, very interesting. How they incorporate the thinker into this movie. Peter Capaldi, by the way, very, another very good job as the thinker. And one thing you're going to understand about this is that it is so well cast. The reason why they're in Corto Maltese in the first place, which is where they are, that's the one thing I can tell you, is very, very interesting. There's a lot of hilarious moments in this movie, too. I laughed out loud several times. The one warning that I will give you with the Suicide Squad is this is a, in my opinion, a hard R rating. A 100% hard R for the Suicide Squad. It's not just rated R. It's a hard rated R. Trust me on this. And this, and not just for the violence either. But, but the violence is dialed up a notch. Probably the most violent DC film to date. No question. I, I mean, I'm not, I don't even think any of the other ones come close. Maybe the most violent superhero movie. I say movie because, you know, The Boys is a pretty violent series. But as far as movies go, like if we're just going Marvel and DC, nothing Marvel touches this. And I'm not even sure Deadpool does, the first Deadpool movie. Not sure it touches this at all as far as violence is concerned. But the strategic choice of each character that James Gunn and company made was so, so spot on. And just the, the way that this movie was shot, I'm not a film savant at all, but the way that this was shot and pieced together and edited and how even every piece of the set seemed to matter and how things would just get spelled out in certain ways too, I loved. It kept my attention from start to finish and that's, I mean, that's one of the biggest compliments that you can possibly give to anything, right? So I just found this completely just off-the-wall bonkers crazy. It was so much fun. I mean, there were, obviously, in, in a movie like this, there's going to be certain conveniences that are going to happen. And that certainly does here. That's, if you want to find a complaint, maybe that's it. But, you know, just shut up and enjoy the friggin' movie because that's exactly what I think that you're going to do. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but it does have its heartfelt moments at the same time. It understood that everyone that made this movie understands what the suicide, what the suicide squad is, who they are and what they do. Then you get to the end credit scene, by the way, which is that there, there is a like a beginning of credit scene and then there's an end credit scene which is all the way at the end of the credits which is going to be one of those oh my god I can't believe that I'm seeing what I'm seeing kind of moments and where where you go from that well, I think will be very very interesting and could we see James Gunn working on another DC movie or two or three or five who knows but he says they are he is talking to DC about some stuff and by the way I think this will absolutely make you 100% want that Peacemaker series that's coming on HBO Max, too, by the way. John Cena 
delivers a this is John Cena like you've never seen him before ever I can almost guarantee you that so this will set you up for something you are really going to love too in that Peacemaker series I freaking love this movie this is one of those ones I could definitely see you going to the theater to watch twice never mind on HBO Max as well but this is definitely one don't bring the kids for sure but this is one that you're going to want to watch again so bravo to everyone involved in the Suicide Squad. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of the Suicide Squad from Warner Brothers Pictures and DC. Up next, we're going to head to Disney Plus to talk about Short Circuit Season 2. We'll even get some notes from the press conference as well. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Shay Fontana, writer for DC Superhero Girls, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Disney isn't just known for their animated movies. They're known for their animated shorts as well. That's why I was so excited to check out Season 2 of Short Circuit on Disney+, Plus, which is available right now. And I wanted to give kind of a spoiler-free review. I know the shorts were out there, but I wanted to give kind of a spoiler-free review of the short animated films that I saw. And I just want to break these down really quick. Kim Hazel was the director of Dinosaur Barbarian. Rhiannon Delanoy was Songs to Sing in the Dark, the director for that. Ryan Green for Crosswalk. Lisa Ray for Number Two to Kettering. You've got Jacob Fry, who was the director of Going Home. And then I also was at a press conference with those directors and the production manager, Jennifer Newfield, as well. And there was it was just funny to me how every short had a different kind of vibe, had a different kind of theme, had a different kind of direction, and, of course, a different animation style as well. They're all pretty much 2D animation in a certain way or form, which I really, really love. I will tell you the ones that stuck out to me the most, though. And the first one was Lisa Ray's number two, Dekettering. I just really loved the way that she portrayed that world with color or lack thereof. As a matter of fact, during the press conference, I asked a question about that, about her use of color, and she talked about how she used it to communicate emotion. She said, and I quote, okay, if there's a girl full of vibrant color and she's living in a world that's maybe bogged down with the weight of the world, and maybe she's just getting on a bus. Everyone's going about their day, but you have a lot going on. She's full of energy and bubbles. And then she goes on to talk about how, as she interacts with people, that color can kind of be drained. A little bit and that's kind of how the emotion is portrayed in this short and I really really loved that and how she brought it out now I won't really give you any spoilers beyond that but it is just such a wonderful it's almost like a what's the what does the world need now kind of short right and it, and it kind of tells you to me anyway personally it's a commentary on on the world as it is right now and how you know sometimes maybe the color can be drained from your day because of certain things but how do you get that color back i think is something that i really think that this short explores as well another one that really stood out to me was crosswalk by ryan green because it was just so funny and it was just so it wasn't just the color but how the animation just kind of popped right out of the screen and actually this was apparently Part of a real, there's apparently outside of Disney animation, there's a real stoplight out there that just drives everybody bonkers. And Ryan Green talked about how he was there many times. You could see way down the street in both directions, he says. There's very little traffic and the light just takes forever. And he says, I remember standing there one day just waiting and waiting and waiting and just pictured, you know, his ancestors showing up and saying something like, Hey, what are you doing? And that's sort of how the short came about. And that's a frustration I think you can relate to, right? You've been at a crosswalk at a time or two. You're thinking, how am I still here? Or even just stuck at a red light, right? And this short really explores that. And the way that it th- that there's just an over-exaggeration of that story, right? And I think the ending is one of my favorite parts. And the reaction to the ending in that short in the moment is something that I really really dug and another one was that i really really liked was dinosaur barbarian by kim hazel because it was just so crazy and so fun and she just talked about how this was just a crazy idea she came up with and just pitched it and all of a sudden it becomes a reality and talked about also wanting to get the song 
stuck in our heads. And I think that she really, really managed to accomplish that. If you watch Dinosaur Barbarian, I'm going to warn you right now, it is just, it is absolutely 100% an earworm. Not even going to lie about that. So just be ready for that song to be stuck in your head once that happens. And another thing that struck me was the short that was done by Rhiannon Delanoy, Songs to Sing in the Dark, because it's the way, you know, usually you see music used as an element in animation, right? And it's a huge, huge part of the emotion and the telling of the story, but it was more of a sound thing for Songs to Sing in the Dark. And I thought that that was really, really cool because there was such a focus on sound since she talked about during this press conference that I was at about how different animals make different sounds like, you know, tiger moths using interference patterns to jam echolocation and how bats use echolocation. She was talking about how her parents were both scientists. So she would just go down these rabbit holes sometimes of just kind of using, uh, just kind of learning about things like that. And just the possibilities that sound could use to bring out in storytelling in this different way, which is super, super interesting. Not to mention how the animation style really jived with that as well and made all the beats matter, which I thought was really, really cool. Really, they were all quite entertaining in their own way, and they really run the gamut of emotions, too. You get some fun stuff. You get some weird, quirky stuff. You get some kind of melancholy, sad stuff. As well, it's going to bring out some sort of an emotion in you. And it's funny how that happens in such a short amount of time. They are animated shorts after all, so that makes sense. But, you know, even maybe shorter than you would say of a typical animated short from Disney as well. And it was just amazing to me what these filmmakers were able to put in to such a short amount of time. And if you haven't watched this yet, if you saw it on your Disney Plus screen, you're thinking... I don't know what that is, so I'm just going to skip right by. Don't skip by this. Take a few minutes, and it won't take you a super long time to watch all of these shorts. Season 2 of Short Circuits on Disney Plus available right now. I'm thinking for sure you're not going to be sorry that you watch Short Circuit on Disney Plus. I think you're really going to enjoy these shorts. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Short Circuit Season 2 from Disney Plus and Walt Disney Animation. Up next... Going to talk to Taylor K. Mejia about her brand new book from Disney Hyperion. And Rick Rorian presents, as a matter of fact. We'll talk about the next book on the Paula Santiago series next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is David Ahn from the Rampage Movie, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So excited to talk about now the second book in the Paula Santiago st- series and the Forest of Nightmares with author Taylor K. Mejia. Taylor, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing great. As a matter of fact, this new book, of course, is the sequel to River of Tears. Did you know from the beginning that there would be a second book? And how happy were you to be working on this sequel? Yeah, I did. I actually knew there would be two from the start. So I I planned it with that in mind. But there were definitely some new challenges. Like, I had a blast writing it. It was so cool to, like, incorporate these characters that I got to know so well in the first book. But Definitely an interesting line to walk to, like, keep them relevant to the characters people grew to love in the first book, but also give them some new challenges and some room to grow up. Can you talk about that, too? Because I think that that's something that people don't often think about is that, okay, so you you, you write a book, you don't know how it's going to go, and then all of a sudden, bam, you have a fandom. Does that all of a sudden go, whoa, now I actually have a bigger responsibility to actually not only tell this new story, but add new characters as well that are just as interesting. Yeah, totally. It's so interesting because I feel like when you're writing a book, it's such a solitary process. It's like you and the page in the room by yourself making stuff up. But then you, once it comes out and you start to hear from people, like I've gotten some crazy letters from people being like, I will die if anything happens to this character. You can't kill this person. You have to make sure these characters end up together. And it's like, it feels like a lot of pressure. (laughs) It's like, uh, you can't please everyone. So you just have to tell the story you're trying to tell and hope people stick around, I think. Well, cards on the table. That's how I felt about Emma. I'm just saying, just saying. So, (laughs) you know, just putting that out there. Okay. Emma must be protected. (laughs) So... (laughs) She's wonderful. Absolutely. 
So Paulus actually facing some new challenges in this particular book. But things seem much more personal, if that's possible, this time around. So do you feel like a large part of that is maybe some relatable teenage angst as well? Yeah, definitely. I feel like there's a pretty big line between 12 and 13. I feel like when you're 12, you're so sure about what you think about the world. Like, I've known 12-year-olds through work that are just, like, ready to get a driver's license and, like, get out there and be an adult. <laughs> they're, like, they're very sure that they know everything. And then once you kind of come into, like, this threshold of becoming a teenager, all of a sudden it's like back to square one. You're so uncertain about everything. There's so many new things that are coming up as you like grow into adulthood that it's like a really big challenge, that transition, I think. No doubt about that. As a matter of fact, there are more complications for Powell at home and there are also challenges there as well. So what made this second book the perfect time to really explore the story of her estranged dad? Yeah, I think the first book is really so much her just like discovering that this other world exists when she was so sure that it didn't. So just the appearance of these folklore characters and these monsters were just like enough to be dealing with. And then in the second book, she's going to learn without giving too much away how she's personally connected to those things. So the first book is like, whoa, uh, this exists. And then the second book is more like, okay, but why me? Like, why am I the one who was drawn into this? And her dad has a whole lot to do with that. I actually think one of the things I really love about this story too is friendship's a big part of this, especially you mentioned the gap between 12 and 13. I love how you kind of highlight the fact that, you know, sometimes these relationships change over time. How important was it to highlight that aspect of her story? Super important, I think. I mean, I just, there's no guidebook, you know? I feel like there's so much that's talked about in terms of romantic relationships, like growing apart from a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a partner, like what happens when you break up? And there's so much about that. That story's been so done. And like, there's just not that much out there about what happens when you grow apart from a friend. And I think at that age or at any age, really, that can be even more devastating. Like these are people you've known for your whole life. You've been through so much with them. And yet it's like a necessary and normal part of growing up that you're going to be different people and I think it's really important to like talk about how tough that can be that's the thing that really struck me because I felt exactly that same way and I'm like this is maybe the one thing as far as personal relationships go that literally everyone's been through at least once at some point and you're right it's gutting yeah it's awful it never gets easier and it's sometimes it's for not terrible reasons like with Pau and Dante and Emma well Dante's a little bit of a piece of work in this book but Emma specifically the reason that her and power growing apart is not for a bad reason like Emma's kind of coming into her own she's come out as queer she's joined this group at school of people that you know she really relates with and Pau's super happy for her even though she feels a little bit left out and like doesn't know what her place is in her life anymore so it doesn't always have to be like a big fight or some falling out or someone being bad sometimes it's just like we want different things and that's so hard which was a perfect way to put it so i think you did a great job with that talking to taylor k mejia who's the author of paula santiago and the forest of nightmares which you can get right now as a matter of fact now taylor both of these stories not only can kind of contain creatures from folklore like the chupacabra you've also got you know some ghost stories as well like the la llorona from the last book which kind of carries over into this one as well what made you decide to kind of blend both of those things like these folklore mythical creatures with the paranormal in this story? I think they were so inextricable for me when I was growing up. Like those were just the stories we grew up with and they seemed so normal. And But also the real unifying thing is that they all terrified me as a child. So when I came to, you know, writing a book for kids, I was like, all right, what are the stories that really stuck with me from childhood and it was always the scary one so I really kind of just went through like a full buffet of like all the things I was terrified of as a child and by the way bravo to you for actually being able to tell the story of La Llorona in a middle grade kids book I'm like this is the what now (laughs) I know this story holy cow and you pulled it off Thank you. I appreciate that. I definitely got some raised eyebrows, especially from my family members when I was like, yeah, I'm going to write a book for 13 year olds. And it's going to be about a woman who like viciously drowns her children and commits suicide and then haunts the riverbank looking for more children to drown for generations to come. And people are like, how? (laughs) Like, how are you going to do that without literally ruining everyone's life? And I'm like, hey, I could hear it at eight. I think other people can handle it. And yet you've got James Wan sitting at home going, this is how I could have done the movie. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, 
funny enough on its own, man. <laughs> no, no doubt yeah, about no, it. No doubt about it. Now, let, let's talk about Dante for a second. And, and again, I don't want to spoil anything here, but how much can you kind of tell us about where Dante and Pau are at the beginning of the second book? Because I know it's awkward right now. It's super awkward. And I think that's like that's also such a normal part of growing up. Like you have these friends and they're growing apart, but you also have, you know, you're just, you're practicing for so much stuff at this age. And Pal was really sure that like, she wanted Dante to be her boyfriend and they had this kiss on the cheek and they weren't sure what it meant. And there was hand holding a little maybe. And then it's kind of like, Oh, we're back in normal life. We're, we're not, you know, under siege from terrifying monsters anymore who are we and what does this all mean? And I think it comes down to kind of the way that these two very different people have reacted to going through the same circumstance. So Pow is like, I really came into my own when I was fighting monsters. And like, I felt like I had all this agency and I could kind of like handle my own stuff. And I want to keep feeling like that. And Dante has had different consequences than Pow. He kind of just wants to forget it ever happened and go back to like being on the soccer team and so they're they're growing apart in a much different way because Pau really wants Dante to be there for her and like be the person who remembers what happened because they went through it together. And Dante's just like, ugh, let's go to the pizza place and talk about normal stuff. So, yeah, I think another thing that happens a lot at that age is just like you're going through similar things, but you're growing into different people, and so you're going to react to them in totally different ways. Absolutely. Now, and I know you brought back a lot of the characters that fans have loved from the first book, but how, how much can you tell us about some of the new characters that we're going to meet in this different adventure? Yeah, there are definitely some new characters, and definitely characters that like you didn't see much of in the first book that are going to have a bigger role to play. Obviously, Ondina met her sad but timely end in the first book, and I really wanted to uh, pursue... My favorite character to write is always like the sarcastic, snarky side character. So now that I was missing my snarky ghost girl, I had to uh, find another place to get that snark and sarcasm. So there's definitely, she's not a brand new character, but Naomi is a, a character we didn't see a ton of in the first book that definitely has a lot more page time in this book and just was super, super fun to write in terms of just like her total irreverence and snark about absolutely everything. <laughs> Oh, I noticed that. Trust me. That that was something that I picked up on right away. Now, Taylor, before I let you go, <laughs> Pau's such an interesting and relatable character. It feels like we could easily see her on the screen in some capacity. So could we see these stories adapted maybe as a movie or even a series at some point, you think? Yeah, actually, we're working right now with Eva Longoria's production company to adapt for a TV series. So it's very, very early stages. This kind of stuff takes forever, but I've been really excited so far. Everyone we're working with is super awesome, so keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> oh, could she play Mama Bear, maybe? Maybe? In this series? I wait. I don't know. I hope so. I could totally see it. I can see it now that you said it. That's pretty awesome. All right, here we go. Going to be watching out for that, but <laughs> yeah. you don't have to watch out for the second book, though, because it's already out there. Paolo Santiago and the Forest of Nightmares is now available from Disney Hyperion and Rick Rorian Presents. You might as well go ahead and get the first book in the series, River of Tears, if you haven't done that already, too, because it's a great binge. Taylor K. Mejia, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was awesome. Yeah, if you're looking for a really cool story for your middle school kids, I think that this one is that story, the Palo Santiago series. Make sure you're getting both books, as a matter of fact. Again, thanks to Taylor K. Mejia to, for joining me to talk about Palo Santiago. Up next, we're going to continue reading. This time we're going to comics. So what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Lemire, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. When it comes to what we're reading this week, it's Vengeance Times 2. Spirits of Vengeance, Spirit Rider, number one from Marvel Comics, where I'm going to start off. It's Taboo and B. Earl writing this one. Paul Davidson handling the art. Dan Brown on the colors. VC is Joe Caramagna on the letters. Takashi Okazaki and Rico Renzi doing the cover for this one. Now, you do have Demon Rider, if you're not familiar with her. She's sort of an Apache. She's a Sorcerer Supreme now. As well, but she's also a writer, too. So she's kind of kind of got a lot going on for her, and she's stuck in the present day now. She or her entire like village was slaughtered by soldiers several years ago, and she sort of teamed up with Doctor Strange, and now she's stuck in the present day. But it's a good thing because she needs to help Johnny Blaze, the ga the Ghost Riders, kind of, and you know maybe a little bit of spoilers here in this, so just be prepared for that. He sort of raged out a little bit. 
and Doctor Strange thinks he's got some sort of a demon inside him or something, and who better to help him with that than the Demon Rider? Now, the Demon Rider can actually do this thing, and this might be the biggest spoiler I'm going to give you, where she could take a trip inside of Johnny Blaze to sort of try to cleanse his soul in a way. So she actually enters his body in a spiritual astral projection kind of way, right? So now the spirit of vengeance is on is is on a very dangerous mission and who knew you know going inside somebody's soul would be a dangerous thing to do especially when you talk about the ghost rider himself. Now whether you want to call this a demon, a host, I'll let you be the judge when you read this book, but it doesn't seem like it wants anything to do with Johnny necessarily. Johnny was the like the, the the candy to try and, you know, get the kid to go underneath the sewage grate so Pennywise can catch him sort of thing. So it was all to basically lure Demon Rider down into the thing. Now, Demon Rider kind of knew this, though. She's very smart, but she's looking for answers of her own. So that's kind of where this thing goes. And I won't spoil the ending for you, but very, very interesting how it plays out for her and how the story unfolds in general. I will tell you, though, this book is very inner dialogue heavy. You're going to get a lot of interior monologue in this. Be prepared for that. It does kind of make the story drag a bit. I'm not going to lie. I You, you kind of get the point, and everything was pretty clear. I didn't feel like there was a, as much explanation needed and background needed as they gave. You, you got enough background. I think they went a little bit too heavy on it. And that's time that could have actually been spent on a little bit more action, which I think would have also let the art thrive more because I thought the art and the colors were really, really good in this book, but didn't really get a chance to do as much as they could have. All in all, though, a very interesting story and a good way to establish a new and powerful sorcerer and a very interesting character in the Demon Rider. So, yeah, this is definitely one that I'd be interested to see how you feel about it if you go ahead and read this book. But I, 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 w- I wouldn't pass up on it, but just be ready for it to not be the quickest read. That's the best way that I could possibly put it. We've got another book in the Black Hammer universe, and it is The Unbelievable Unteens, number one from Jeff Lemire as the writer and Tyler Crook handling art, colors, and letters, and cover art for this thing. Tyler's just a machine in that regard. Now, I know that you know you've you've heard say that you know some of the best stories come from real life experiences, but this book kind of takes it to another level. And I can't say anything too much because this book isn't out yet, not out till August the 11th. If you're listening to this before that date, so I'm not really going to spoil anything. But it follows Jane Ito, and Jane is a comic book creator. She's a writer. She's an artist. She has a very popular comic book series called The Unteens. And she kind of learns something about herself. And she's about to find out that she's much more than a comic book creator. And, by the way, that her friends need her help. Now, who she is is not something that I'm going to spoil for you. How she finds that out, I won't spoil for you either. But it was a very, very interesting reveal. And even if you're not completely familiar with the Black Hammer universe... I feel like this is a book you could go into cold and still enjoy. Because I will say, I've not read everything in the Black Hammer universe. I don't know it inside and out. But I really, really enjoyed this book, especially the the reveal that they had in the middle of it. I thought it was a pretty darn good one, quite frankly. And 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 it's going to lead to what I believe is going to be a very intriguing and entertaining storyline. This is a, a book that definitely made me want more when I was done. And isn't that kind of what you want anyway, regardless, right? I think it is. So here's the deal. If you love Jeff Lemire's writing and you love Tyler Crook's art, then you are you should already be in anyway. But even if you're on the fence, I think that this is one of those stories that could be really, really cool that I think you'd like with some very likable characters as well. So yeah, the unbelievable Unteens number one from Dark Horse Comics. I would definitely add this to your pull box. I don't think you'd be disappointed at all. That's gonna do it for what we're reading up next. Want to find out who the new Blue Beetle's gonna be in the live action movie? I'll tell you next. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
This is Taylor Hickson from Deadly Class, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Some of the scare because it's time to save the world. It's time for nerd news. And yes, the Blue Beetle movie now has their Jamie Reyes. This was first reported by Variety, actually confirmed on the red carpet for the Suicide Squad premiere, believe it or not. And it is Zolo Menduena who is going to be playing Jamie Reyes in the HBO Max movie. And yes, it is that Zolo from Cobra Kai. That's right, Miguel is now going to be Jamie Reyes. And before I get into this, did I call this on on the on a previous show when I when we were first talking about the Blue Beetle movie going to HBO Max? I I need to dig through the archives of the show. I mean, if you're a regular listener and you remember me saying this, please tweet me at downnerdy757 because I think I remember saying he would be perfect for this role and he even said so on the red carpet when Variety asked him about it. He's like, "Hey, I've already got a martial arts background. He said, I love the, the fact that we've got Latino representation for a superhero here. It is a 100% perfect casting. And I think that he's going to do a fantastic job. He's got just the right type of personality. You see that from his character in Cobra Kai. He's certainly got the chops as far as the action is concerned. I don't think they could have picked anybody better to play Blue Beetle. This movie, of course, is going to be exclusively on HBO Max and supposed to be coming out, by the way, sometime next year. So you're going to see Zolo in Season 4 of Cobra Kai, which is going to now premiere in December on Netflix. And then you'll see him as Blue Beetle on HBO Max sometime next year. Going to be a good year for him, I have a feeling. Or at least from year to year, anyway. We have no idea when Blue Beetle is going to premiere. Don't forget, Batgirl is going to be another movie. Let's give it on HBO Max as well. It's starting to look pretty good for original movies on HBO Max, doesn't it? Not a ton of news this week, so let's do a little bit more trailer talk. Talk about Venom, Let There Be Carnage, the new trailer that came out. And I'll get to the alarming thing about it in a second. But is this not like confirmation that Woody Harrelson's going to be fantastic as Cletus Cassidy in Carnage? Like, seriously, if there's anybody that's pegged to play like a serial killer psycho, it's Woody Harrelson. Haven't we, this been, hasn't this been proven by us already? Like, when he bites him and he said, I've tasted human blood before, I'm, not, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, and that ain't it, or something like that, and you see the look on his face and the way he says it, it's like, dude, bravo, because I've got chills. And that is the exact kind of way you want to feel about Carnage. Carnage is supposed to be a psychopathic, terrifying villain. And it looks like they found the right guy to bring that persona out. And and as far as the look is concerned, you knew the look was going to be good anyway. So I was never concerned about that. We also got a look at Shriek, too, by the way, in this trailer. Not like a full-on look at Shriek, but a little bit of a look. I actually kind of have a theory, because I don't think we're going to see Spider-Man in this movie at all. I kind of have a theory that Shriek's going to end up having to go anti-hero and help Venom defeat Carnage. I kind of think that's where this is going to go. And, you know, whatever happens from there happens as far as what they're going to do with that character. But the most alarming thing was, remember this was supposed to come out in September, right? Did you notice at the end of the trailer when it said coming this fall? So all of a sudden it's like, hold on a second. This fall, are we going to get delayed again? Seems like it could. You know, all this data coming out about, you know, COVID numbers and people are now not as comfortable going to the theaters they were before. Don't be surprised if these movie delays start to come hot and heavy here in the next few weeks. No, I won't talk about a ton of them here on the show. I'm you you check social media for that kind of stuff. I'm on our website down at nerdypodcast.com. Don't like to talk about a ton of delays because we've done enough of that stuff. So just. Something to consider. Okay, so keep your eyes open for that. Here's a show I never thought was going to get made just because of how many times it was delayed and how many people were, you know, in the project, left the project. Why The Last Man finally has a premiere date, finally has a trailer. It's going to be premiering September the 13th on FX on Hulu. And, you know, quite frankly, it's, it's, you see that horrifying, you know, oh, well, guess what? You know, all the men in the world are dying off. And you see that right away in this trailer. And it's pretty horrifying 
to be to be quite honest. It really is. So, and it seems like the casting too, by the way. I don't know how you feel about what you saw, but it seems like the casting is pretty dead on as far as I'm concerned. You've got Ashley Romans playing Agent 355. That looks like it's going to be a good casting, you know, just, just based on the trailer. Diane Lane as Senator Jennifer Brown. Yeah, you can't go wrong there. Ben Chinetzer as York Brown. I mean, yeah, they, they, as far as the look goes, they've certainly captured that. As far as, I mean, you look at the comic, then you look at the characters in the series, and you go, okay, yeah, well, that they got that. It seems like tonally they've got it down as well. How similar it's going to be story-wise to the comic is something that I'm definitely curious about. But it definitely has that eerie tone, but it definitely also seems like it's got a little bit of lightheartedness to it at certain times as well. There are a couple jokes thrown in the trailer. Not like really big jokes or anything because, you know, that's not the kind of show this is going to be. But at the same time, not full-on heavy either. So, And then you see that, you know, the, there's going to be a little bit of a, little bit of a turf war as it were. I mean, maybe that's not the right way to put it, but there's certainly going to be a fight over, you know, who this guy is going to benefit more, quite for lack of a better way of putting it. I'm not here to spoil the comic for you or anything like that. I'm not going to do that. I'm just saying why The Last Man going to be out on September the 13th on FX on Hulu. It looks pretty darn good to me. Here's something that might have made you roll your eyes, and that's the fact that we're going to get another Cinderella movie. This one going to be coming from Sony Pictures and Amazon on Prime Video on September the 3rd. And the reason that I, because there's been a lot of Cinderella movies and stuff like that, let's face it, there really has. I understand if you're thinking, really, we're going to do this again. And then you see, okay, it's going to be musical. Okay, Camila Cabello is going to be involved, and she's legit. I mean, you want to talk about superstar status. I know that she hasn't really done a lot of acting, but as far as pop star status, she certainly has that. And she certainly has the singing chops for a musical, right? And then you got Adina Menzel, who's going to play... The Wicked Stepmother. And I'm like, yes, yes, that is a good casting. And it, you know, so she goes from Frozen to this not too shabby as far as I'm concerned. So and, and if you look at the trailer, there's also like a modern aspect to it. There's going to be modern music in this as well. And you see that Cinderella doesn't necessarily want to just be a princess and be stuck in, like she says, the royal box and waving. She wants to also, you know, she wants to be a businesswoman. She wants to be a designer. So you mix that in a little bit and she might still find her Prince Charming, but she also doesn't want to be, you know, stuck in that place where she's just, you know, it's like, it's almost like she said that it's almost not, not better than being locked in the basement of her stepmother's house because she wants to be her own woman. Yes, she she wants to fall in love, but she wants to be her own woman as well. Yeah, she wants to have it all, and what the hell's wrong with that, right? So I think that this is a very interesting modern edge on Cinderella, and if there was a reason to do this movie again and there was a reason to have a little bit of a different take on it, I think this might be it, right? So I'm quite interested in seeing how they're going to do this and pull this off with Cinderella on September the 3rd on Amazon Prime Video. Really quickly, I wanted to talk about The Night of the Living Dead getting an animated adaptation from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment. It's going to be called Night of the A Night of the Animated Dead. So this is going to be an animated version of the George A. Romero classic. If there's a zombie movie out there that I can I can watch and enjoy, it's Night of the Living Dead and it's got to be up there with the Mount Rushmore's, right? It's going to be coming out on September the 21st on Blu-ray on Blu-ray and DVD. Excuse me, that's on digital. Blu-ray and DVD coming out on October the 5th. This is the only thing that concerns me. It's that, yes, they're going to give you the animated version of this, but they're also going to add scenes that have never before been seen in the original. And that's what scares me because that's what they said about the killing joke. And you you saw the scenes that they added to that. Now, again... Apples and oranges, maybe, but it, it concerns me when they say they're going to add scenes because it, I, different people involved, too. But still, it, when you've got a classic story like this, I don't mind you just doing an animated adaptation of it and be done with it. I really don't. 
adding scenes, I don't know that you really want to do that. But, I mean, the cast is legit. You're going to have Josh Duhamel. You get a little bit of a psych reunion on this as well because you've got James Rodea Rodriguez and Dulé Hill that are going to be a part of this. You also got Katie Sackoff. Will Sasso is going to be in this as well. And then you've got Demente Animation Studios handling the animation. So there's a lot of reasons to be excited about this and a lot of reasons to, to really want to see how they're going to do this. No question about that. But at the same time, adding scenes is where I get a little bit nervous. But it looks cool, so I th- certainly think it's going to be worth checking out. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to my amazing guest this week, Veronica Falcone, who plays Trader Sam on Jungle Cruise. And then you've also got Taylor K. Mejia, the author of Paulo Santiago, Paulo Santiago, who, which is the new book is out right now. So, you know, so much good stuff to go and read and watch and make sure you're keeping up with everything we've got going on too at downandnerdypodcast.com on social media as well at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Greetings, adventurers. Today, we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.